back and live. I'm Jimmy Krupka, and welcome to Arc City. Arc City is supported by U.S. Ski and Snowboard and officially sponsored by Spider Active Sports, the U.S. Ski Team's apparel supplier for the past 30 years. Learn more at spider.com. Hello again, people. First off, I want to thank all of you, the people listening to this pod right now. I'm sitting in the sound booth in the Park City Library. Actually, there's a few people just outside of this sound booth, and I hope they can't hear me just talking to myself here in this booth. But if you're listening, it means that you are part of Arc City, and the Michaela Schifrin episode was a huge hit. And if you haven't listened to it, it's worth it because I'm particularly proud of that one. And that was a big day for the podcast. Again, my mission here at Arc City is to reach as many people as possible, mainly because ski racing is just an awesome sport, and there's a content desert out there when it comes to ski racing. But also, I remember growing up as a kid whose parents didn't ski race, and ski racing knowledge felt like this exclusive club. And I want to democratize ski racing knowledge. So the best way for you to help me with that is by telling your friends about this podcast. Hey, everyone's always looking for a new podcast to listen to, right? And also by subscribing or following and giving me a good review on the Apple Podcasts app. Now, before we get to my interview with Sam DePratt, and it's a really cool conversation, by the way, I've got two headlines for you. The first, the NCAA recently passed a new rule allowing college athletes to benefit off of their name, image, and likeness. In other words, ski racing just got less expensive for college athletes. Expect to see more helmet stickers and sponsored Instagram posts next year. This is a good thing for ski racing, by the way. The second headline is also potentially a good thing for ski racing. A man named Johan Eliash, I hope we said the last name right, formerly the CEO of Head, was elected FIS president. This was, um, you know, a few weeks ago, maybe maybe more. He campaigned on the idea that the sports media content needs to be modernized and that broadcasting rights need to be centralized. Like, ever wonder why it's so hard to watch ski racing, especially online? It's because long ago, each country was given the broadcast rights to the World Cups that they host. So it's a super cumbersome and expensive system, completely outdated. Hopefully, Elias can make some changes. And now, without further ado, my teammate on the U.S. ski team, who skied a couple seasons of World Cup speed races, who has also been my rehab buddy and also just a cool, smart guy in general, Sam DePratt. All right, Sam DePratt, welcome to Dark City. Thanks for having me. So, I'm gonna blast through your background here. I did some research, <laughs> AKA like I know you as a teammate. So you grew up in Sacramento Valley in California, cabin on Donner Lake. So you uh, skied the weekends at Tahoe, and then you moved to Park City, went to the winter school, started taking ski racing more seriously, uh, made the US ski team, skied on it for a few years, was cut, skied for University of Utah for four years, Won an Oram Super G title. Wait, am I messed up anything so far? I was only two years on the Utah ski team. Only two years on the Utah ski team. Okay, but you did win a Super G title, skied independent for a year. Yep. And then you made the US team. I was an invitee um, starting in the winter of that year, so I did the summer on my own. Okay. Um, and then was named last year, was the first year I was named on the team. Okay. Again. And then you broke your legs. 
Yeah. Plural. I've also never consecutive. This is my first time ever consecutively making the ski team. So back-to-back years. It only took two broken legs, but I finally made it in back-to-back years. <laughs> and you Other made it because you broke your legs. <laughs> yes. That was official criteria this year, I believe. Well, shout out U.S. Ski Team for having an injury clause, at least. Yeah, it's huge. So that's, that's big. cool. Uh, how much milk did you drink as a kid? Uh, the most milk. <laughs> so this is so funny. So for everybody listening, Sam and I are going to maybe have more of a conversation as opposed to an interview. It's kind of fun for us because I broke one leg. And so Sam and I have been rehabbing together. And uh, the fascinating thing is I drank a crazy amount of milk as a kid too. So the got milk ads were a sham, turns out. <laughs> well, I, I'm still drinking milk. <laughs> me too. The nutritionist told me like yep. calcium, you get it through milk. Yep. Yeah, okay. So I'm still drinking milk. Anyway, um, what's your return to snow date? Uh, it was November 1st. It was still shooting for like mid-November, um, but I got another surgery August 9th. And then, yeah, hoping for November, ski at Copper with the team and be cool to cool to be back by then. And you broke your leg in what, December? December 17th. Gotcha. You think when you get to December 17th, you're going to be thinking about it? Yeah, I think about it most days. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> so there's nothing new there. Yeah. So... I mean, let's just like dive into it. I'm going to play so you don't have to repeat this. I'm going to play the clip. Uh, I did a little mini documentary uh, and Sam was in it and he described his leg break. And I'm just going to play that right now. You just want me to like describe the crash? Like what I remember? If you feel like it. Yeah. Yeah. So one of my left foot donkey kicked on me. I did the splits. My knee hit my chin, left the ground slightly and got twisted landed on the outside of my left leg and heard my left leg snap. Um, kind of sounded like if you took a branch, if you were making firewood, um, <laughs> you hear that crack, it's a very similar sound. I immediately knew I broke my leg and I rolled onto my back and it looked like cooked spaghetti and I knew the fence was coming. So I put my right leg down and it twisted and that one was more of a spiral break. But then when I stopped and I sat up and looked and my right toe was facing backwards, my knee was in front of me, but my left leg had rotated so I could touch my toe box and my boot. A uh, ski patrol in Italian accent asked me if I was okay and I was like, no, my legs are broken. <laughs> so that was... <laughs> That was a crash. So, uh, and also a disclaimer to people listening, like, I mean, I, I think we discussed this, Sam, like if, when we, when I talk to sports psych, they're like, it's actually better to talk about it more than to just like, be like, don't think about the crash. Don't think about the crash. Is that right? Yeah, for sure. Um, the more I talk about it, the more I'm like immune to it i guess mm-hmm. um i actually still haven't watched my crash but i'm gonna watch it this week it's like been part of my goal to like watch it and be like desensitized to it so i can visually watch it and not be affected by it because otherwise i feel like the second i put on my skis and like hit a bump again it's just gonna be like it's gonna play in your mind yeah for sure you're gonna have flashbacks because like there's a certain amount of trauma that isn't ever gonna go away but you just gotta numb your mind to it i guess yeah get comfortable with it yeah it's a tough thing. So uh, the goal is to get back to racing, right? To be clear. Yeah. For the people listening. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, full disclosure, I was lying in the snow and I was like, oh, well, this is how it ends. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I had uh, no, at that point in time, I had no desires to even think about coming back. And um, 
honestly, even after, you know, wheelchair for three months and I was coming into the gym and I was doing battle ropes with, uh, <laughs> with, in Chris, a wheelchair. with yeah, with Chris Miller and, yeah. and the motivation was low and, uh, shout out to my rehab crew, uh, Jen, Caitlin and Chris, cause they kind of planted the seed back in my head that it was going to be possible and, um, kind of built me from the ground up mentally and physically. And it, it's kind of cool, like to have people like that. Cause realistically, like I, I was, I was done. Um, it, it, it did enough for me to like mentally, physically. And I was like, Oh, my legs will never be the same and all this stuff. And, um, if you have a good team around you, it's crazy. Like what can happen? And I don't know if you yeah. feel the same way. I know you sure. were much more ambitious coming out of your crash. Um, but like, how do you feel about just like the people around you building you up stronger than you even thought you could be? Yeah, I fully agree. The people around you definitely help. Honestly, the people around me that helped the most was you and Kyle Negamere, who both had worse crashes than me. Kyle <laughs> did ACL, MCL, completely mashed hand and, and shoulder. And, and then you did both legs. So I'm sitting here with one leg with a much shorter timeline, like, oh, life isn't that bad. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone asks me how I'm doing. I'm like, I'm better than my teammates. So <laughs> like, that's pretty good. Yeah. And I think the other thing, like I did come out pretty hot and I'm like, I'm gonna get anti-inflammatories. I'm gonna meditate and do all this <laughs> crazy stuff to like, I'm get back as soon as possible. So it's pretty ambitious at the beginning. And then you kind of realize like, hey, like you don't need to think about ski racing for a while mm -hmm. you can just like do your recovery and then start to think about ski racing because you've got like months ahead of you and it sounds like that's what what happened with you yeah like i didn't even want i didn't watch much ski racing i watched kitzbühel and i liked watching you know my friends race but like i didn't watch the whole race i would just fast forward each american um and i like didn't really have the like drive of like figuring out like who was fast and why and like i just kind of watching it for entertainment and it's it was a weird point in my life where it was like I didn't hate it, but I didn't like it. Um, where it was like, you like that sport did this to me, but it's also I did it to myself, so I deserved it. But it's also like no chance I would ever want to do this again. And now I'm already at the point where it's like, all right, I might be ready to do it again. Yeah. Um, even though I have two rods, so hopefully that would be bad if I did it again. <laughs> Trauma goes to yeah. the knees, then works its way up. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be fine. It's hard to break your legs again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Kyle makes the knee look easy, so it should be fine. Yeah. Knock on wood. <laughs> a religious wood knocker. I actually knocked on wood the night before the Super G. Mm. So, so now you're not a wood knocker anymore. No, but I've other people have had way more injuries than I have up to this point in my career. So yep. maybe my wood knocking has been just ran out. I'm, dude, I was the same way. I was like, I I'd never gotten hurt really. Broken arms, broken hands. Um, had a back injury, but like never a season ender and. I thought about that a lot. I was like, man, I'm really lucky. Like, maybe that's why I made it to the World Cup. Is like, I was just lucky enough to never have anything that did this. And I'm like, oh, well, now I'm just like everybody else, finally. Yeah, finally. <laughs> Didn't like being an outcast, you know? Yeah, but I, I think, like, there's a lot to be said for if you make it through a whole career and don't get injured, were you sending it hard enough? You know, I agree with that. But also, I was absolutely cruising on this downhill run. Oh, really? Like, I... Um, it's not like you were I was sending like, it super hard. No, and I was like okay. scared of camel's jump. I don't know if anyone knows what that jump is, but it is so big, it's insane. Yeah. <laughs> Once you hit it, you're like, all right, that wasn't that bad. You're, but literally every going, year, you're literally going off a big camel hump, basically. Yeah, it's like, like an 80 massive, foot gap yeah. at like 90 miles an hour. Yeah. And like that's how um, uh, Mark Gassin put himself in a coma. 
And the previous year, I actually started right after him, and he was his year coming back, and he was talking to me about being in a coma, and that was kind of nerve-wracking. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But but I like wasn't getting. Randy had already told me I wasn't getting the downhill start, so I was just doing it to like warm up, feel the train out, and it just like and it's weird because it's like that's when things go wrong. It's like when you're not kind of pushing it, and your like attention isn't oh, fully there. Well, and, there like, you go. Yeah. yeah. And so now I'm like more afraid of not you know pinning it, and that seems to be when I wreck on my mountain bike too. Like when you're it's like when you're, oh like oh a little scared. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to just like rolling through it, and, like you know, confident, even if it's false confidence something to that there is a lot to say about false confidence yeah i actually wanted to back up a second because we were talking about like the how i was uh you know like anti-inflammatory diet <laughs> and like all my pt exercises three times a day and like basically like you know the the whatever that attitude is like okay everything possible to like get back but it's kind of a draining thing to do and I remember I went into the doctor and he's like, and got my x-ray and he said, well, you're not the fastest bone healer I've seen. And I'm like, but I'm doing healing meditation and electric <laughs> bone stim and all this stuff. How is that happening? And then Sam's like, man, like, you know, I've been drinking a glass of wine and playing video games at night. Like, <laughs> and apparently I'm healing my bones incredibly fast. So like, obviously there are certain things that, help you like and as an athlete you have to do but i think some athletes get so caught up in like doing everything possible that's good for them that they forget to actually like enjoy themselves and enjoy life and like there's there's actually science to show that the more stressed you are the slower you heal so i don't know if you want to talk about that but it seems like you've got that kind of dialed in <laughs> probably too good <laughs> and there's a balance I guess. yeah yeah there's for sure a balance and uh chris miller shout out again but um he by the way to our listeners chris miller was a uh strength conditioning coach with the u.s ski team but he just got hired by the brooklyn nets which is cool but we're also going to miss him yeah we're also pretty bitter towards him but um <laughs> he told me like every good athlete has a lazy streak and <laughs> and when i first started working and working with him you know i wheeled in here with my wheelchair and my double boots and and i was like i, I told him i was like i don't want to be here I was like, I'm here because I don't want to just be lazy. I have nothing to do the rest of my day. If I had anything else going on, I probably wouldn't be in here. And he was like, I get that. But he did the right thing and like kept like motivating me through, I don't know, some form of intrinsic <laughs> values um, and like planted the seed as opposed to being like hard on me. And um, I mean, I was pretty like broken down. Um, but I think that that almost lack of motivation, like, I was sleeping 14 hours a night. Like I would go to really? bed at nine and I would wake up. <laughs> Not, that was an exaggeration, but like at least 12 hours a night. Like I was going to bed early. I was waking up late. Like I was sleeping in this lazy boy chair nonstop. And like granted pain is like enough. Of, I wasn't taking any painkillers or anything like that. And that's enough to like kind of like lull you to sleep because you just, that's like a way of like dealing with it, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that played a huge role actually. And like I was wearing my aura ring, which is like tracks your heart rate, your sleep and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. My resting heart rate was over a hundred for almost two weeks. Wow. Yeah. When I got, right after I got home and it's like, and like to give people a reference, my resting heart rate most nights is around 40. Yeah. And mine's dropped back down into the forties. Um, even before I crashed, it was below 40. 
Um, so it's just like your body's just working full time to heal stuff, you know? And like, if you come in here and, you know, mash your muscles and you're like pushing it all the time and like constantly working, your body has to recover other things, then it's not recovering, you know, what's injured. And that's kind of how it was explained to me. And I thought that that was really cool because I didn't have to work out as hard, (laughs) (laughs) um, but it's also good to like come in and get your blood moving, you know, and like freshen up your blood, oxygenate stuff, you know, push your heart a little bit because yeah. um, lying in a lazy boy for three months just doesn't really do much for you. But um, I think there's a certain element of like, I wasn't enjoying myself, but I wasn't trying to think about ski racing because I've put so much. Uh, Your whole life you thought about ski racing. Yeah. And yeah. like, um, there's been so many letdowns in the sport already. Like, and this is just the biggest one yet that it was like, um, I think I think you have to kind of roll with the punches in that sense, but it's also taking a step back from it gives you time to like recover mentally as well and give your body a chance to like figure its own stuff out as opposed to being like back on the horse, you know, too yeah. soon. Yeah. So a lot of people say that, you know, struggle defines you and that, you know, whatever. What's that Kelly Clarkson song? It doesn't kill you, makes you stronger. Or is that Katy Perry? I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. One of them. But like, so do you think that there's like a point though? Like, do you think that you're going to come stronger out of these broken legs? Or are you kind of like, eh, I could have done without broken legs. I don't need to be a little that much stronger. Like, what do you think there? I want to hear your opinion first. I think that my broken leg has definitely made me like mentally strong. Like I, I can deal with more now. Because I'm like, well, it's not snap leg. But do you think you'll be a better ski racer for it? You're saying you're a stronger person. I'm I'm a stronger person. Time will tell whether maybe I get back on skis and I'm so pumped to ski and I've been thinking about it so much that I just rip, but maybe I never make it back, you know? So time will tell whether it makes me a better skier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say it for sure, like, gives you perspective. Um. It's a good word for it. Yeah, like, uh, I mean, I haven't been able to run still, and it's been, um, I'm working on eight months here. You know, I still can't, like, if a mountain lion were to chase me, I'm done for, you know. (laughs) I'd be done for anyways, but a really slow mountain lion, I still couldn't outrun it. Or I couldn't outrun, you know, Alice if I was hiking with her or something. (laughs) (laughs) But, and that, like, to me, bothers me, and, like, um there's a certain amount of it's like a different type of strength i'd say so yeah i'd say i'm i'd say i'm better for it in the sense of like i understand a certain type of struggle um i mean let's be honest like being able to you know being from a family that's been able to afford skiing and live in town like park city like we haven't really had it rough yeah um and so if this is my portion of a rough section like it taught me a lot and I expect there to be other rough sections in my life. And I'd say I'm more ready for those now. So I'd say I'm stronger in terms of adversity. And like, I like that I'm, you know, it's like at first I like broke my legs and I was like, Oh, poor me, you know? And then I was like, all right, solutions. Like it's time to like lay out some solutions. Let's figure out this. Like, you know, I finished school. I started looking at jobs. Like, um, I was like, I kind of just like mapped everything out and like, I started making progress in other aspects of life and now like skiing's back on the, on, on board, you know, cause originally they told me they didn't know if I was going to ski again. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, I just like threw it out, like, oh no. And then after certain doctor's appointments, they said it was gonna be possible again. So then I like, kind of trickled back in, but, um, but yeah, sorry to go back. Yeah. I'd say it made me stronger, more ready for adversity in life. I doubt it made me a bigger, better skier. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because uh, maybe I'm a, I'm a heavier. I got eight pounds of metal, eight pounds so of metal. And there it's more. I've got some lead in my legs, so maybe it'll 
give me some more gliding. I mean, it'll feel, give you some more like leverage on yeah. the boot finally. Yeah, except for I'm knock kneed and duck footed now, so I don't know how that happened, but hopefully there's muscle. <laughs> well, they put, uh, well, they actually. Do you think they put your ankles on wrong? They, they, just they put, did. So really? my right foot was, according to um, downstairs of this building, that <laughs> the, my right foot was 40 degrees rotated out. My left foot was 18 degrees out. And, um, and the right foot was the one that was spun around backwards, but they think that the plates are playing a bigger role in that. So when I get the plates out, hopefully it kind of, it'll, your feet will yeah. be less duck footed. Yeah. That's why. Otherwise I have to go find those Fisher boots that were duck footed from like 2010. <laughs> <laughs> Which weren't, weren't an advance in boot technology, <laughs> no. except maybe for you. Yeah, they okay. could be, you know, yeah. more power in the duck foot. Yeah. And, and this isn't the first time you've dealt with, the, you know, this this isn't on my notes necessarily, but it popped into my head. This isn't the first time you've dealt with kind of serious adversity uh, in skiing. And I don't know if you want to talk about Ronnie and Bryce, but I imagine that that was a defining point in ski racing for you. Um, for the listeners who don't know, uh, Ronnie Burlick and uh, Bryce Assel died in an avalanche when they were on the D team six years ago. Yeah. Um, I mean, that wasn't easy for anyone. Um, it was obviously harder on a lot of people than it was for me. I was, you know, one valley over when it happened. Um, but shout out to the Burlacks. Uh, when I got hurt, I got a package in the mail um, pretty much two days after I got home from the burlacs and it was the nicest thing i got a lot of gifts so shout out to everyone that sent me gifts that was it so mean a lot when you're sitting in bed and you've got a little gift it's yeah. so cool and it's like i'm not much of a crier but like the, you tear up every time i even like think about it and i like tear up like the people care enough to go out of their way and like the stuff that was in there like i won't share what's in there but it's like there was it was <laughs> everything was like meaningful stuff and it was from people that i wouldn't expect it from yeah. And the Burlacks are one of those. And they called me once a week, every day, and for an update. And we talked about they were sailing. They were, you know, we just had like a great conversation. And it meant so much to me. And um, I thought a lot about like what Ronnie would do if this would happen. And yeah. it was like no chance he would quit ski racing if this happened, even if the doctors told him. And I was like, all right, so like. I owe it to them at least <laughs> to, to try as absolutely hard as I can. Yeah. And, um, no one loves skiing as much as, as much as those two did. And so it's like kind of a cool, cool way to think about it, that it's like, I, I still have the opportunity, so I should take it. And, um, and the support that the Burlack family gave me through all that was overwhelmingly cool. That's really cool. Yeah. You know, you think about it, like the, they could have been bitter about the whole thing and they have given so much back to ski racing and uh, Cindy sends it so hard on the master circuit. Oh yeah. <laughs> we had a lot of cool conversations. She switched to Nordica in the winter. So we were like talking about her switching to Nordica because Steve was all fired up and they finally got Cindy to switch to Nordica for her master's racing. And um, uh, it was, yeah, yeah it's just cool that how much they've, yeah, how much they've given back and how much they genuinely care on like the individual level. Um, and as you know, it's like all their, um, 
philanthropic work and in skiing is directly benefits individuals which is cool you know like a lot of times you know you donate to the team and you know it benefits the sport and in in general and um there's a lot of people that do that and they benefit individuals as well but that like benefits every individual and every family um to not have to go through what they went through so that's yeah Yeah, shout out um brass b-r-a-s-s bryce and ronnie athlete snow safety i believe it is cool foundation educating people about um avalanche safety mm-hmm. yeah well let's we'll get a little away from the heavier stuff because yeah. uh you mentioned switching to nordica so we're going to talk about uh equipment stuff now Ooh, and there we go <laughs> wait i'm gonna i'm finding my train of thought here oh so th- this is the thing i've got to talk to you about flexing your boots uh-huh. so you have this theory that you watching world cup video you know, every coach, every coach, especially growing up, will tell you, flex your boots as hard as you can, get as far forward as you possibly can, because that is what good ski racers do. Mm-hmm. But looking at World Cup, you're like, well, maybe it's not always forward all the time. <laughs> um, it's definitely not always forward all the time. I can tell you that. Uh, if you're trying to generate speed and you're on the front of your boot from the beginning of the turn to the end of the turn, um, Anyone that's using fore aft momentum will smoke you, and you learn that in college very quickly. That is like the one major yeah. thing college taught me was you have to learn how to juice the ski from the toe box even to the heel, like to the heel yeah. of the boot. Because if you're not pushing through the whole ski, you're have way too much friction at the bottom of the turn, and you're not pushing yourself down the hill. Um, and the reason it applies so much in college ski racing is because the hills are generally flatter, uh, the course is a little bit straighter, yep. and so you you like you could get away with juicing the ski, and you have to juice the ski on the flats. Right. Um, my, <laughs> I've thought about this a lot, so I have too many thoughts in my head. <laughs> Um, I learned this too in downhill. Uh, mainly, I was at the Val d'Isère World Cup before I got hurt this year, and I was watching people ski the turny section that was like moderately steep. Um, it was steep enough to where like you're out of your tuck. Um, it was super bumpy when I went. Probably wasn't that bumpy when the guys that were watching went. But you watch these guys, and they're you know it's clean skiing, it's powerful skiing. Um, these dudes are obviously you know some of the best athletes in the world, but I ski the exact same line as them. If anything, I went straighter and I was making GS arcs, feeling beautiful, sick, yeah. you know, hip on the ground, you know, and everyone's like, oh, well, you can't have your hip on the ground and downhill. It's like, well, there's uh, turns where you do. Yeah. Um, and I was getting absolutely annihilated in that section. And that was supposed to be my section. Like I was like, I'm the GS super G skier of the downhill world. Like I should be gaining in these sections. Yeah. And I was getting, I was like 4.2 out in the tourney section. And I was oh like, my goodness. what? And I'm watching side by sides, watching side by sides. And the one difference I saw was I was leveraging my entire upper body over my skis. And Kilda, shout out your last podcast. Yep. Comes in there back squatting like 600 kilos with his VMOs hitting him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> and he's pulling more radius and he's, you know, pushing through the middle of the ski. Um, he obviously has the strength to get away with that and the balance and the technique to get away with that. Yeah. And that's not how I was brought up skiing, you know, and I was, my chest was over my, the tips of my, 
would I'll say the front of my boots. Yeah. Um, and what I found out is that that position is out of balance because you are fully leaning on your boots and you don't have, you can't do anything with that. Yeah. Whereas like if you're, I'm not talking like flexed ankles, you always got to have shin pressure because you have to have some point of contact. That's to your how skis. you control your skis. Yes. Yeah. But leveraging your body over your boots creates an imbalance, a fore aft imbalance and too much friction in your skis. And it's more apparent in the turny, softer snow sections of downhill. And that's when it was very much so um, enlightening to me that I was just decelerating through the entire turn of as every a, single turn. Yeah, as opposed to you going from tip to tail and accelerating yes. and using more of the middle of the ski. Yes. And if you watch Foyt's, if you watch, I, Foyt's is interesting because Foyt's never really gets back. Kilda gets back, I would argue. Yeah, he does. Um, Foyt's stays dead center of his ski top to bottom of every course mm -hmm. but that man will never decelerate on a pair of downhill skis he is yeah. pushing to the middle of the skis and when i say decelerate if you think about it and you're forward on your ski and that tip is biting that is digging into the snow yeah and the tip is constantly trying to bite yes. even more that's the slow. more forward that on the ski that you are yes yeah and that's one major thing i haven't gotten along with heads and new boots and they're um a more aggressive boot than what i ski in and if you watch all my training in copper, my tip is catching and releasing through every single turn. And I was four seconds out every run. And then I switched to my other boots, which are more angled forward, but I know how to ski in them. And I'm more balanced kind of in the four half position. And I ski a little lower with my hips and the tip all of a sudden wasn't doing that. And I was exponentially faster. And it's so, like, yeah. And it's this bizarre thing of like finding out where the balance point in each boot is and each ski, how you tune your skis. And you know, everyone's going to be different. But I refuse to believe that throwing your body to the front of your skis at the top of every turn is the fastest way to ski or the and safest. Unless you're at like a Val GS or basically some sort of super icy, super steep section where if you tried to go back, you'd, you'd lose it. Like, Yeah. And I would almost never – I'm not strong enough to go back. I would never say yeah. – in, in World Cup. College, yeah, yeah. sure. You can push your feet in front of you. But – in World Cup, I would never risk <laughs> getting my getting feet, feet in front of out, in, yeah. yeah in front of my knees. Kilday can do it because he's so strong. Yeah, yeah. and and crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm scared, yeah. uh, and I'm and that's fine to say that, and you can say that if you've raced it. But yeah. a lot of guys are scared. Um, but I, I think that over leveraging the front of the ski creates too much friction and. You can say a Solden or a Valdezera on ice. Ice, any form of ice, it's always, you can, friction doesn't play as big of a role. There you but go. it will play some yeah. role. But also, um, when it's that steep, if you think you're throwing your body down the hill, you're just matching the terrain. Yeah. And you're still like, if not you're actually that far forward, you're not yeah. actually that far forward. On the flats, you throw your body forward, you are imbalanced like immediately. So this is really interesting to me, and it, it makes. You know, if there's going to be coaches out here that might be just be like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. What are these guys going on about? And also, we'll probably end our technical discussion soon for those people that are listening to this podcast because they listen to Michaela's and and which was less about technical mm. stuff. And they're like, what are, you, are these guys talking about? <laughs> like four aft, ski, front of the ski tip, whatever. Anyway, I'm going to end it here because with my own experience where I – there were there's two super g runs in particular where i skied where i one of them i won and one of them i skied 
completely out of my skill level. I skied way faster than I could have imagined. And I got to the bottom, everyone's like, you're in first. And I'm like, I felt like I was kind of in the back seat. I felt like I wasn't really on top of things. Why was I fast? So maybe that's uh, maybe that's why. Yeah. And that, okay. So this is my best analogy to all the coaches that teach countering, aka I, having the body, <laughs> aka having their body face out, as opposed to rotating through the turn with them. Yes. yes. Rotating is bad. Mm-hmm. I'm fully on board with rotating is bad. But teaching yeah. countering, countering is a tool, is a speed control tool and a tool for staying in a position where you can hold certain forces. Countering is slow in every sense of the word. Countering, you should only counter as much as you absolutely need to. If you could- Just to keep grip, basically. Just to keep grip and to keep your legs strong enough and your core strong enough so you don't collapse at the bottom of the turn. So countering is a tool used in staying upright in ski racing and should be used as minimally as possible. It's just like a stivet. It's like, it is not a speed creator. It is not how you win races. You have a kid countering, you should teach him to follow his skis and then teach him how to use his counter as a tool, like as a tool. It is not a fundamental way to ski fast. Yeah. Um, and I have had certain coaches um, teach countering and as <laughs> soon as someone says that to me, it's gone. If you tell me, if you say I'm rotating, I'll listen because then I know I need to get, I need to square up. Maybe there's a little bit of counter involved in that. Mm-hmm. But if you're countering, I at least at the college level, I can tell you you'll lose every single race. All right. I like that. Well, let's throw that one to the dog. And see how they enjoy that. All right. If you disagree with me, you can call me or uh, we can fight in the parking lot. But I'll put Sam's contact info <laughs> in the description of this podcast. Perfect. You can text him or call him with any of your grievances. Yep. Um, well, you mentioned ski racing, so it's a perfect segue. Or college ski racing, uh, so it's a perfect segue into, um, well, ski racing media as well. It's a perfect segue into a discussion kind of started by ski racing media last spring about, you know, college skiing versus U.S. ski team and what's the best development path Mm. and does the U.S. ski team support college skiers, blah, 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 blah. It got super complicated and there's a lot of political stuff tied up in all this. So we're not going to get too deep in the weeds, but Sam, you're a unique case because you skied on the U.S. ski team, and then you had a stint at college, and then you made it back on the U.S. ski team. So you've seen both worlds. Um, just straight up face value, like, uh, you know, can someone only ski in college, not on the U.S. ski team, and make the World Cup and, and make it all happen? Can someone? Sure. Um, I just think that's a low percentage conversion rate. Yeah. Um, I think it would take a special person. Um, and I think it depends on what they're bringing up through their fist life is like and where they trained. Um, in terms of World Cup tech, uh, yeah, it's such a hard question. It's it, a, it, it's, it gets so complicated. Yeah, it depends yeah. on the athlete. I have a lot of opinions of like which athletes I think should go to college and with uh, which athletes I think should like ski independent or you know stay more focused. Um, I think college has a, a lot of benefits. Um, I also think there's a lot of downsides to it. Uh, I think it'd be really cool if American skiers were good enough to go into college when they're 18 um, and do like 18, 19, 20, 21, and then like Europa Cup 22 and then bust on the World Cup, you know, 23, yeah. 24, 25. But see, the, the, the problem we're dealing with, especially for the people who don't know this topic too well, is basically everyone in college who's good 
is has taken two gap years or has come from Europe and is an exceptional skier. So basically, in order to get into a good skiing college right out of high school, it's not going to happen unless you're a prodigy. And in that case, <laughs> you're on the U.S. ski team. Right. Um, and I don't have a solution for this. Uh, I, I would say one is that the U.S. ski team tells those kids to go to college and trust the college system to help develop them, them. keep developing them. Yeah. Um, I don't think that trust is there. And I think they have good reasons that the trust is not there. Um, I also think the trust c- could be there. Um, and I think that falls on college coaches. I think that's what a lot of like the ski team, you know, there's the back and forth, like the ski team maybe doesn't give college kids the same benefit of the doubt. Um, there's evidence there. Sure. Or maybe they just don't like the athletes that are coming out of college because they're not, you know, there's confirm- or there's biases towards the people that came through their pipeline. Um, or the kids coming out of college aren't as good, you know? Um, and that's, <laughs> could be a total reality. You know, I was not, I am, I came out of college and I river developed much more than me at GS than I developed at GS in college. And he and was there's no denying four that. years younger than yeah. you. Yeah. And there's no denying that, but I got better at a lot of other things, um, that helped me, you know, succeed in super G and, um, and it was what I needed at the time. And I think I think what the answer is, is like each person's going to have to just choose their own path and stick with the pros and cons of each. Because there's a lot of cons of being on the D team. Um, yep. It's mentally exhausting to go to Europe and get your teeth kicked in uh, in Europa Cups. Um, it's mentally exhausting, you know, traveling all the time, not being home with your friends, uh, yeah. being at the COE. You know, it's like it's it's tiring, especially for an 18-year-old kid. And if yeah. you're an 18-year-old and you're mature enough to handle that stuff, then it's going to work for you. Um, it didn't work for me and that's, and that's fine. You know, the ski team, yeah. I had all the resources I needed. It wasn't, it wasn't anything like that. It was just like, it didn't work for me either. Like yeah. I went to the D team right out of high school and I, I, you know, I was a little bit lost and I didn't, there's so many skills, like just life skills I didn't have. Uh, but then there's the give and take of like, if you go to college there, you know, coaches worry about this and sometimes it feels irrational, but sometimes it's a very rational worry. Coaches worry that kids will go to college and realize that there's more to life than ski racing. Yeah. <laughs> you go to college, like, wait, there's so much more to life than ski racing. There's so many ways to have fun. Uh, so it takes a special person to, I think, go through multiple years of college and try to stay focused on just ski racing. It's hard. To do. I would say it's impossible to stay focused on just skiing. Like, and I think that's why, you know, like certain people develop faster than me while I was in college. But yeah. you develop other things and you develop like how lucky you are to be a ski racer. Um, yeah. I totally agree with that. I think that's a, <laughs> but also it's like if that kid, I mean, Eric Arvidsson's a great, great, like he literally walked away from the ski team. Yeah. Like, he didn't get dropped. I got dropped. Yeah. He was like, I want to go to college because I think that's what's best for me. And he, like, he, he was he kind of lost his passion a little yeah. bit for skiing. Yeah. And hats off, savage move, mature move. Yeah. And he's back and he just got eighth at a World Cup. And like, that's a special person. And that's like what he thought was right. He trusted it and he did it. And it's yeah. like, there were cons involved for sure. And, um, the, but there's like pros and cons in every situation. And I think that people need to be more mature in the sense of what's best for each person. And I think, the allure of the U.S. ski team is real. Um, you know, everyone yeah, wants everyone exactly. wants the jacket, and I think that's cool, and I think yeah. that needs to stay. But sometimes being able to walk away from it because your your passion's not there, and then you go to college, you realize that it is there, and you come back, and like that's the person I think is going to go farther in the sport as a person that's like just blindly following ski racing because it's all they know. Yeah. Um, and 
I was blindly following ski racing and I got dropped so many times. It just like put me in the darkest hole of, <laughs> you know, I was like, all so, right, the ski team clearly doesn't want me unless I like perfectly make criteria. And it's hard to not gauge your success off of being on the team or not being on the team. Right. Um, even if, and then if you, and then you realize that you're not on the team and then you beat people on the team and you're like, all right, I'm just as good as the people on the team. Yeah. And you're like, all right. So it doesn't really matter. It's like, it's they're cool jackets and you know, shout out to spider, but, um, <laughs> the jacket, <laughs> but you it's, get the jacket. but it's not the end all be all. And like, and the cool thing is like, people don't respect you just because you're on the U S ski team. Like, and, or, you know, like there's so many ways to like respect yourself and like figure out what what you want, what you're good at and find your own path. And I think that's what just needs to become normalized in skiing. It's not this like cookie cutter, you know, um, you should be winning norms by 18, yeah. uh, winning your open cups by 21 and you know, yeah. So for people that don't know, Sam's referring to the U S ski team's criteria system for qualifying is basically based on some data they have this, they call it a performance band. And if you're not, this good at 18 and this good at 20, then you get cut from the team. But if you continue on that that curve, they call it, then you stay with the team. It's a tricky thing for, for male athletes who sometimes develop later than others. So that's where the whole developing in college thing is kind of. Right. But I also, I don't want it to, it's not like a, this isn't a poor me because I understand what the ski team does. I understand why I was dropped. Um, I, yeah. I'm, I'm bitter towards exactly. it. Sure. Like, yeah, yeah it sucked. Um, but they got to draw the line somewhere. Yeah. There yeah. has to be a line and I understand that it's a business. They're in the business of, of medals. Um, I wouldn't do this if I didn't believe I couldn't still win a medal. Um, and I know we're expensive. <laughs> um, so I guess I get it. You know, it's like, you can be as bitter as you want. Um, and you could disagree with, people there's always going to be disagreements with who should be named and what but um the last thing i want to say about that is like i i love i love the whiskey team their resources are unbelievable and i love my coaches i love my teammates but you don't need it like if there's anything i learned is i mean it was tanner farrow cody marshall and me and, and you guys are and independent I, but yeah yeah and i scored world cup points at kitsville it's like that and that's not I, I don't like saying that because it's like it toots my own horn here, but it's no, like, you got to toot your horn. <laughs> you're going independent and scoring World Cup points at Kitzbühel. You should toot your horn about that. But it wasn't that hard. That's all yeah. I'm saying. Like the hard part was like logistics and paying for it and yes. raising money for it. Yeah. Basically. yeah, but like I got better. I'm better. I'm stronger for that. Yeah. I'm, I'd say I'm stronger from that than breaking my legs. And it's like and people can do it. And um, and like the Brian McLaughlin towards Stephanie is like those guys. They're gonna do it again, and they're gonna prove that like there's ways there's ways around it um and i just hope that the usk team keeps their doors open to when they come you know knocking back that's all that's all that matters to me i don't really um so to appreciate someone when they've made that jump and deserve to be back on the team yes yes because that's you need to recognize that that's a different challenge than even you know being on the team and you know i won't say it's harder but it's different and to have the open doors and like keep those relationships open, I think is vital in the success of us skiing. Cause we're all in it together. Cause we're in reality, we're a, a poor nation in the world of ski racing. <laughs> so we need all the, the wealthiest money. nation in the world, but yeah. one of the poorer in terms of world cup success. Yes. Well, Sam, I've got basically one or two more questions for you. This one comes from a listener. Uh, I was going to ask Michaela this, but I chickened out. So I'm going to ask it to you and I'm interested. Uh, what's your greatest fear in life? Uh. 
and uh -huh. it, it, you don't have to answer it either because like it's an extremely personal question basically i'm wondering is your greatest fear that you break your legs again or is it or is it something else oh uh, it's sharks okay <laughs> no i know i can go way deeper than that um well, you don't have you don't have to but like <laughs> no. but like I'm, I'm kind of trying to you know push you like i remember you you said you broke your leg but then once you kind of got through it you were like wait it wasn't that bad yeah, I definitely would say my greatest fear is not breaking my legs again. Like, yeah, I'm afraid of it. That would suck. Yeah. Um, and if it's like a whole scary thing and um, there's, I'd say like the greatest fear is maybe, maybe an injury worse than that. Um, or you could go the route of like, I mean, it, the classic answer is fear of failure, but it's not necessarily, I'm not afraid of failure. I've failed at everything. Like I've been dropped from the team four times. I've, yeah. um, I got a 14% on a calc test once. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like failure is how you learn. And yeah. so you, I actually, sometimes when you fail, you like try something and it doesn't work. You're like, oh, nice. Check it off the list. Yeah. So it's go. almost like a, a fear of, I guess, it, okay. So I guess what I'm trying to say is it's a fear of failure because of maybe I'm not big enough. Maybe I'm not strong enough. Um, that's, you know, like, and that's something in my genetics I can't change. Maybe yeah. I, it's, if it's something like out of my control, um, that scares me because I can't control it. If I can control gotcha. it, I can blame myself and it's fine. Whereas if I can't control it, it really bothers me. That's all okay. I'm trying to say. Okay. My fear that's is very of, things, fear. of things I can't control. Yeah. Um, and whether that's luck, that's, uh, I guess, fate and fate scares me yeah that's a great one yeah that's a really good one i'm I feel tight in the chest now after saying fate that. is scary <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. anyway oh at the end i always give guests a uh chance to promote and or shout out an idea a person an organization literally anything you got anything um Shout out to, I guess, everyone that's supported me. Um, I've had a lot of people that have doubted me and I've had a lot of people that go above and beyond and believe in me because in my career on paper, I've never been an elite athlete. Um, physical testing, uh, young results. Um, I've been a late bloomer and the people that I've worked with on an individual level always seem to believe in me and go above and beyond and fight for me. And the people that I'm kind of just like pushed onto, and um, they don't like get in my way, but that you know, like I can t I can tell I can look into somebody's eye and tell if they believe that I could win a medal someday. And um, to those people, thanks as well, because that's like to me that's almost more motivation because I love proving people wrong. Yeah. Um, like getting dropped from the team, I can, you know, I'll bring this up one last time for the <laughs> 158th time. But it like it crushed me. But then remaking it and walking back in this building and being like, "What's up, nerds?" <laughs> you know, you're like, yeah. "I'm back." Yeah. Like, remember when you guys remember that meeting in guys... uh, Sugarloaf when you guys dropped me? Like, here I am again because I just beat everyone that you guys named last year. And then obviously I got beat again and then dropped again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Like I love I love the proving proving people wrong. And um, so I guess thanks to both people, but seriously thanks to everyone that's like ever. To the people that you're currently proving right. Yeah. Well, yeah. currently. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully I prove you right again. But um, it, mean, it means more than 
most people it means more than words can ever describe when somebody does a favor for you that it might be small in their opinion of like representing you at a meeting or um giving you training you know like Bur- like burke burke mountain academy put gave training to tanner and i when like no one else would and it was incredible and um you know peakley street academy sponsored me and like gave me money to be my head sponsor and um you know i've, I've mentored a few a few um uh, their students and that's great but like to me that's like them believing in me as like a person and like that's so cool yeah. it gives me so much confidence and so much desire to like keep doing it um that those those small things carry more weight in a, a old young ski racer's career yeah <laughs> Sam DePratt, it was an absolute pleasure having you here in Arc City. (laughs) I've fallen up Michaela and Kilda, but um, maybe we'll do a more controversial episode about technique someday. skiing history nugget of the week once again comes from the international skiing history association this time from the most recent issue did you know the oldest skis ever found by archaeologists are almost 10,000 years old which means that skiing has has existed for at least that long now these skis were found a few hundred miles northeast of moscow and scientists think that skiing started in this area now called russia and finland kind of the baltic area and then the practice migrated to the rest of Scandinavia, and then a few millennium later, east to Mongolia and China, and only later established in the central Alps of Europe. Now, the oldest pair of skis with evidence of bindings is carbon dated to be about 5,000 years old, which is kind of funny. It took them 5,000 years to figure out bindings, and then another 4,960 to figure out uh, shape skis. Anyway. I had a debate about how old ski racing is with a teammate the other day. I argue that if skiing is 10,000 years old, then ski racing is also 10,000 years old. My teammate argued that people weren't trying to have fun back then, and so ski racing didn't happen until much more recently. But I have a hard time believing that once the second ever pair of skis was made, people didn't get an urge to race each other and see if they could beat their fellow tribe member. Like, the urge to race feels like such a primeval instinct. So I'm curious to hear what you think. Write me a note by email or on Instagram if you want to weigh in on the matter. And maybe I'll read the best responses on my next episode. We just got a letter. Wonder who it's from. Now, speaking of mail, I got a note from a Davis who asked if I could talk about what other athletes and I eat during the offseason to help me with muscle development and all that. Now, I can't devote a whole episode to this, mainly because I don't know that much about it. But here's something I do know. If you're talking about muscle development, that is putting on some muscle mass, the best place to start is just eating a lot. My teammate George Steffi always said that eating should be as hard or harder than working out. And it's kind of a joke, but not really. The more you eat, you know, the bigger you get. Also, lots of protein specifically after workouts helps, as well as creatine. And people think creatine is illegal, like a steroid or something, but it's actually just a naturally occurring thing in some foods. And to uh, sum this all up, for legal reasons, I'm not a doctor or a nutritionist. So these are just some things I've learned over the years. And you're technically not supposed to take, take my advice. And that's our show for the week. 
I'll be away from the booth for a couple weeks. I'm going skiing. I'm very excited. It's the first time in almost seven months, the first time since my injury. In the meantime, tell your friends to visit Arc City. Make sure to subscribe. And as always, never, ever stop staying stoked about ripping arcs. Until next time, I'm Jimmy Kripka, and thank you for visiting Arc City. Arc City.